Hey, listeners, we've got something a little bit different for you. This is a bonus episode, as mentioned on our previous episode, of a sermon I recently preached at Christ's Covenant Church on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. So we thought it'd be fun to throw that in the podcast feed. We hope you enjoy this bonus, quote-unquote, episode of the Various and Sundry podcast. Uh, it is a privilege to... Uh, be here at CCC. Um, I uh, just so much enjoyed our time singing before we got up here. Um, appreciate Marcos and the leadership he provides to that area of our church. Um, it is always a privilege to get to open God's Word. Um, sometimes um, I end up getting passages out of biblical books that are the really hard ones. Um, and sometimes I get ones that are easy. And I think this one is more in the middle uh, as we work through it. Uh, But I want to begin this morning by asking you to reflect on a question. What is something that has impressed you lately? Something that has made you go, wow. Now, your answer to that will likely vary depending on your interests, I know for at least some of you, uh, what comes to mind is something from the world of sports. With college football just starting back up, maybe it's a specific play or event or game from yesterday that blew you away. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's from the realm of nature. You took a vacation this summer, maybe went to a national park and saw the beauty of God's creation around you. Maybe you attended a wedding, or maybe even, I know there's someone here, who got married this summer. And that image of the bride coming down the aisle just took your breath away. Or maybe it was the birth of a newborn baby, a new baby, a new grandson, granddaughter, or a new child that's come into your family. And when you looked upon that child, you went, oh, wow. Maybe it's a book that you read. Maybe it's a movie you watched and you can't stop thinking about it. Now, as a general rule, I think it's fair to say that when we are impressed with something or someone, the response is almost always involuntary. That it's not something that we prepare ourselves for, but oftentimes it just comes upon us and we cannot help but respond with some sort of of words or posture that that communicates that we are impressed by someone or something. Now, the flip side of this is that sometimes we are not impressed with people or things that we should be impressed with because we don't have the necessary knowledge to be rightly impressed by it. I feel this way a lot when it comes to art and classical music. Now, I enjoy art. I enjoy looking at paintings, and I will look at them and I will be able to say, wow, that's nice. But I don't get why it's so impressive. Now, maybe if someone came alongside and said, now observe the, the, the brush strokes that are so subtle here, and you observe the, the change in color and lighting in this part of the painting, and look what it does to your focus of attention. If they come alongside and guide me into seeing why something is impressive, I'm sometimes at least able to enter into that and go, 
you're right. That is impressive, but I need a guide. I need someone to come alongside of me to help me see why what I'm looking at is so impressive. Now, as we open to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles with me. Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind of what impresses you. Last week, we saw that the opening paragraph of Hebrews gives us a glorious picture of who Jesus is and what he has done. And from that opening paragraph, I want to draw your attention to the last half of verse 3 and on into verse 4. So follow along as I read Hebrews 1, verses, last half of verse 3 and 4. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now that statement sets the stage for what's going to follow in the long argument that starts in verse 5 and actually goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. And the main thrust of that whole section is that we must remain faithful to Jesus because he is superior to the angels. The text we're going to look at this morning is the first part of that, verses 5 through 14. And in that section, the author is going to just focus on showing us why Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, if we're honest, some of us might think, this seems like a really strange argument, right? You, you might think, um, isn't this kind of a no-brainer that Jesus is superior to the angels? Duh. What's the big deal here? Well, I don't think that the, that the readers that, um, that the author's writing to are tempted to worship the angels, I think instead what he's doing is he's writing to an audience that is impressed by the angels, that they hold them in high regard, that they think very highly of them. And so in effect, what I think our author is doing is saying something like this, if you think the angels are impressive, and they are, just wait until I remind you of someone who, by comparison, is so far superior to the angels. So I think that's the, that's the impetus behind what the author is saying in our text this morning. And the main tool that he uses to do this is several quotations from the Old Testament. <clears throat> in fact, many of you might be reading from a Bible that sets apart those quotations so you can see them clearly. There are seven Old Testament quotes in my passage this morning. It's like a rapid fire, almost like a machine gun, just one after another to try to reinforce the superiority of Jesus over the angels. And just as a side note, anytime you see a New Testament author quoting from the Old Testament, it is always a good idea to go back and look at that larger passage from the Old Testament. 
Because when they pull these verses, they're not just plucking random verses out of the Old Testament and saying, oh, here's a nice one and here's a nice one. They are regularly pulling verses where the surrounding context of that Old Testament passage has additional connections to what the New Testament writer is saying. And so one of the most helpful ways of trying to understand how your Bible fits together is to go back to those Old Testament passages and look around and see the context of what the New Testament author is looking at. So I don't have time to do all of that in our message this morning, but I'm going to try to model it to some degree as we work through Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. With all that I've set up here, I want you to keep the main point in focus, and it's simply this. Jesus is superior to the angels. It's simple. It's straightforward. Jesus is superior to the angels. And in our passage this morning, the author is going to give us three reasons why Jesus is superior to the angels. The first one is found in verses 5 through 6, where we will see that Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a greater name. So follow along as I read verses 5 through 6. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, as Mark alluded to last week, the greater name that Jesus has inherited is son. That's what the context points us to. And to prove this, the author quotes two Old Testament passages. The first one is Psalm 2, which we had read earlier. If you were following along, you notice that it describes the cosmic battle between the nations, the rebellious nations, and God himself. And when you read through that, you notice God actually laughs at the rebellious nations. Not because he doesn't take their rebellion seriously, but he laughs because he knows the nations have no chance whatsoever of succeeding in overthrowing him. That's why God laughs. He laughs because they rage and they, they, they fight and they do everything they can. And he laughs because they have no chance of winning in the end. Because, as the verse is quoted here, God has installed his king, the true king, that he has appointed to rule over all creation. So in verse 7 of Psalm 2, what we have is that king recounting, this is what God said to me. He said, you are my son today. I have begotten you, or perhaps better, brought you forth into the world. So when God inspired David to write that psalm, he was announcing in advance his plan to bring into the world its true king, who would be known as the Son 
of God. But you see, this promise doesn't exist in a vacuum. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Because when you look at Genesis 1, what you see is that God made Adam in his image, and he is actually a son of God. Luke 3.38 tells us that. That Adam is a son of God. And he was commanded, he was commissioned to rule over creation under God's authority. But as we know, Adam failed. He disobeyed God. And so eventually, as history continued, God raised up the nation of Israel. And when he raises up the nation of Israel, it's interesting to see what he says in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. This is what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. <clears throat> and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But even though God brings Israel up out of Egypt through the Exodus and eventually into the promised land, Israel fails, they disobey, they rebel against God, even though they are a son of God. So, as history continues, God raises up David to rule over Israel. And in the context of his reign, God makes a promise to David that one day he is going to raise up a son of God to rule over creation. And that's the context for what we find in 2 Samuel 7, where God says this, to David about the promised king. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this line of promise points forward to a day when God would raise up not just a son of God, like the ones who failed, like Adam, like Israel, like David, but ultimately would raise up the son of God, who would rule over God's creation as the rightful king. So it's no coincidence that when Jesus begins his public ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist, God the Father announces from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So building on that thread, building on that backstory, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 refers to Jesus as the firstborn, a term that has less to do with birth order than it does with preeminence of being exceptional, being the best in a class, so to speak. Now, we saw that term applied to Israel earlier, but ultimately, it points forward to someone greater than the nation of Israel. All throughout redemptive history, God raised up a son, a son, a son, and he failed. But then he brings in the son of God who obeys. Now, I'm going to use an illustration that is likely to annoy some in this congregation. I do so 
cautiously. Just bear me out. As some of you know, Ohio State University, for many years, has referred to itself as the Ohio State University. In fact, just this year, they managed to trademark the word the to be able to use in their merchandise. Now, look, I am a diehard Ohio State fan. I think that's arrogant, okay? So I can agree with the haters in the room. That's a little obnoxious. I agree. I agree. But here's the point they're trying to make. What they are trying to say is, out of all the universities in the state of Ohio, they believe they are the preeminent university in the state. That's the point they're trying to make. Now, it's an admittedly silly example, but I hope that it helps you see what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 1. Adam was a son of God. Israel was a son of God. David was a son of God. But Jesus is the son of God in a class all by himself. And that is the greater name that he has. Now, because he has that greater name, he is not only far superior to the angels, he is, in fact, the recipient of their worship. That's what the author is pointing at when he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, when he writes there in verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. Now, as you might remember, Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. God inspired Moses to write this song to remind Israel of what he's done for them and to warn them what will happen if they break God's covenant. And so this verse occurs at the end of the song where Moses is warning that as the sovereign ruler of all things, God will bring judgment on his enemies and the angels will worship him because of it. And so the author pulls on this passage to make a remarkable point. What's striking is the fact that in the Old Testament, that verse is describing something true of Yahweh. And yet the author of Hebrews says, this is true of Jesus. This is sometimes what I refer to in my classes as theological math. Okay, I'm not a math person. Ryan Johnson's the math expert in the room. This will be even simple for, enough for me to understand, right? So what, what the author does, he says, look, what's true of Yahweh is true of Jesus. Therefore, put it together, Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh in the flesh. That's a consistent way that the New Testament points to the deity of Jesus. And so, the author of Hebrews, without blinking an eye, says what is true of Yahweh is true of Jesus. When Jesus accomplished his work of redemption in this world through his death and his resurrection and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the angels worshipped him. And what's remarkable to think is that that worship continues day and night, 24-7, even 
as we speak. The Apostle John was given this glimpse in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, of the kind of worship that Jesus the Son receives nonstop. It says this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That is the refrain in heaven, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, forever. That is the refrain. It's going on right now. It's going on in the middle of your crummy day where the world just seems to be out to get you, where nothing is working right. The angels around the throne are crying out, worthy is the lamb, nonstop. And one of the beautiful things about gathering for corporate worship is it's as if we are taken up into heaven to join that chorus, to step away from the cares of this world and to see the worthiness of Jesus and to worship him. That's why we gather, to sing and to pray and to hear God's word preached and to encourage one another because it reminds us of what is happening nonstop in heaven. And so my question for you at this point is simply this. If that's the appropriate response to seeing who Jesus is as the Son of God, is that your response? Or have you come to a point where you think you are so familiar with Jesus that he's just sort of ho-hum. Like, eh, Jesus. Do you not get who you're talking about? Have you ever stopped to think about this? Jesus in the flesh. When he walked this earth, he was God in the flesh. How many people walked right by him and had no clue that they had just seen God in the flesh? Can you picture that? Can you fathom that? And yet, sometimes in our familiarity with Jesus, we can become ho-hum about him. It's because we don't see him for who he really is. We've lost sight of who he is as the son of God. So the first reason that, God, sorry, that Jesus is superior to the angels is that he has a greater name. The second reason that he's superior to the angels is because he has a greater commission. Look with me at verses 7 through 12. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And 
You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, in the previous section, the author began with Jesus the Son and then talked about the angels. Here, the order is flipped. He begins with the angels. And in this section, the contrast between the angels and Jesus works on two different levels. The first is related to time. There's a big contrast here between the angels being created beings with a specific beginning point and Jesus as the Son being eternal. That is, He has never had a beginning. He has always existed. And then the second level of the contrast is related to their position. The angels are servants, whereas Jesus the Son is the King. So keep that in mind as we work through this section here. He begins in verse 7 by using language borrowed from Psalm 104, which was actually part of our call to worship this morning. Psalm 104 verse 4 says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. So in Psalm 104, if you remember when we read it at the beginning of the service, it celebrates the greatness of Yahweh with particular emphasis on his role as the creator. As part of creation, Yahweh made the angels to serve him. They act as his messengers in this world to accomplish his purposes. And the imagery of wind and fire further highlights the temporary nature of the angels and their service. Winds blow, and then they subside. A flame of fire burns, and then it extinguishes. Both have their purpose and are very useful in the moment, but they are still temporary. God has commissioned the angels as his servants to carry out his purposes in the world. And friends, that is a high, high calling. In a passage like this, it might be easy to just kind of look down upon the angels. No, that's not at all what the author is doing. He's saying they are amazing, remarkable beings. Have you stopped to consider what most people's response to encountering an angel in Scripture is? It is fall down on your face in fear. They are terrifyingly beautiful and powerful creatures. And in fact, almost always, it seems, when an angel appears, what's the first thing they say? Do not fear. Imagine going through your life like that, right? Every time somebody sees you, do not fear. Relax. It's a burden. The angels are remarkable creatures. They have a specific role within human history, within redemptive history. They 
are incredibly privileged. And yet, it pales in comparison to the role and the commission that Jesus, the Son, has been given by God. And that's why the author cites two passages from the Psalms again. The first one is Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. Let's look at it again. It says there, starting in verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, when you go back to Psalm 45 and look at it in its original context, what it probably is set in the context of the wedding of Israel's king. Now, like Adam, Israel's king was commissioned to rule over God's people as a manifestation of God's rule over his people. He was to rule in righteousness and punish wickedness as an expression of God's own righteousness and justice. But when you look at this language, doesn't it seem a bit over the top for a human king? I mean, if you know your history a little bit from the Old Testament, even as great as David and Solomon were, they never lived up to this. So even within this psalm, even as Israel would sing this song, they were not just looking at their current king. They were looking forward to the ultimate king who would come into the world and embody this perfectly. And that's what Psalm 45 anticipates. It looks forward to the day when it would become a reality in Jesus the Son. His reign will never come to an end. It is easy for us to lose sight of this as time-bound creatures. We think of how long a president serves or how long a king rules, and we think it stretches on, it seems to go on forever and ever. Those are not even drops in the ocean compared to the eternal reign of Jesus the Son. He is ruling over creation right now in righteousness, always doing what is right with overflowing joy and gladness. Did you see that note in there? Last part of verse uh, 9. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is not some stern, mean king. He is a joyful king. He delights in ruling over creation, and he delights in his people. And on the last day, he will punish every single wicked thought, inclination, desire, attitude, word, and action that does not line up with his perfect character. His reign is forever. And the second text he quotes to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a greater commission is Psalm 102. We find that in verses 10 through 12. Let's look at it again. He writes, You, 
Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So if you go back and look at Psalm 102, what makes these words especially sweet is that most of the psalm is the psalmist crying out to the Lord to hear his prayer in the midst of his suffering. After a long section where he goes through several things, where he is grieved, where he's saddened, where he's heartbroken, he comes to this point at the end of the psalm where he reminds himself that in the midst of it all, Yahweh still reigns over creation. And yet, even though he is the sovereign king, you might think, is he too far removed from me to care about my suffering? The answer is no, he is not. He not only cares, he's not only interested, he took on flesh to suffer in your place. He not only cares, he identifies with our suffering and takes it upon him self. So in, a, in quoting these verses, the author of Hebrews is explaining that Jesus is not merely the true king of the universe. He's also the creator. He was the one who laid the foundation of the earth and established the heavens above. And even though one day this present creation will wear out like a garment and pass away, Jesus the Son remains the same and will not change because his years have no beginning and no end. Have you ever stood on the shores of the ocean and just looked out into the vastness of water? It is staggering. You feel so small, so insignificant. This past week I actually saw on social media, people were posting these, uh, these pictures of comparison of the size of the Earth to the size of other planets in our universe and the size of the sun and then going out from that. When you see things like that, we are nothing in comparison. And God is the one who spoke them into, into existence with a word. It wasn't even difficult. He spoke and brought them into existence. And all of that will one day pass away, but God the Son will remain. And not only will he remain, not only is he this detached, distant creator, he is our anchor. Because we live in a world that is constantly changing. Relationships change. Social norms change, jobs change, schools change, stock markets change, health changes, creation around us itself changes. But in that vast sea of constant change, there is one constant that will never change, and it is Jesus, the Son of God. And you can trust him. You can claim 
cling to him that in the midst of all the changing circumstances that we face day in and day out things that we think how am i going to get through this as we cling to jesus he is the same today and he will be the same tomorrow and not only is it that we need to cling to jesus but the good news is ultimately that jesus clings to us so it's not even just, I've got to try really hard to cling on to Jesus. Jesus says, yes, but I've got you in my hand. I am the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a greater name and a greater commission. Lastly, here in verses 13 through 14, we're going to see that Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a greater destiny. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 here in Hebrews chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So here we are, our final Old Testament quote comes from Psalm 110. And this is the most <clears throat> frequently, old, frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's going to pop up several times here in Hebrews. So get familiar with it. In fact... It's going to pop up at key points throughout this entire uh, epistle known as Hebrews. Now, if you go back and look at the original context of Psalm 110, David, as the king, is recounting what Yahweh says to David's Lord. It's a little confusing because in English we translate uh, the divine name Yahweh as Lord, and then we have a Hebrew as a separate word for Lord, so it can be a little confusing. But here's what's going on in Psalm 110.1. David is saying, this is what I heard Yahweh say to my Lord, which Jesus explains in the Gospels refers to him as the Messiah. We get this glimpse of what the promised king who will come from his line, from David's line, will do. And it's almost a thousand years in advance of the arrival of Jesus. So continuing with the themes we've seen in the previous verses from Psalms, the focus here is on the universal reign of the promised king. So this is the opening line of Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so from there, Psalm 110 continues on with different descriptions of how this promised king is going to defeat his enemies and execute judgment. Just like he did with the quote from Psalm 2, found in verse 5, the author of Hebrews presents these words as God the Father speaking to Jesus, the Son. Now, whereas the previous Psalms focused on the eternal nature and the righteous rule of Jesus, the Son, as the rightful King of the universe, this quote points forward to the future, when at last all of God's enemies 
will be done away with. And he will rule unchallenged in a new creation with his redeemed and resurrected people. You see, even though Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father when he ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection, he still has enemies that are roaming free in this fallen world, and we experience their efforts in this fallen world. Even though those enemies were decisively beaten at the cross, they still remain on the loose, able to cause great damage to God's people in this fallen world. But what Psalm 110.1 envisions is the final solution to what was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. You see, on that day, God had promised that ultimately the Son of God would come and crush the great serpent Satan by obeying where Adam failed and taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And by quoting Psalm 110.1 and saying that it refers to Jesus, the Son of God, the author is saying that Jesus is, in fact, the promised serpent crusher. Now, I would love to say much, much more about that, but that's really what Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 is about, and I don't want to steal thunder from Pastor Mark in a couple of weeks. Now, in contrast to that, in contrast to Jesus, the Son of God, who will one day rule over a new creation with his transformed people, angels are once again identified as his Servants, look with me at verse 14 again. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels are sent out by Jesus the Son for the sake of us to play a part in ensuring that we inherit the salvation that Jesus has purchased for us. What a glorious gift. There are two extremes that we can fall into that we have to avoid. One is to see angels and demons around every single corner and behind every single action. And the other is to act as if they do not exist and are not real. Both of them are dangerous. And in fact, Satan loves it if we're on one of those extremes. We either get so obsessed with them that we're consumed by it, or we act as if they do not exist. That realm is real. It is real. There are angels and demons actively working right now in human history and in our lives. And God has sent these angels to ensure, to help us, to assist us so that we inherit the salvation that God has accomplished for us through Jesus, the Son. And think about that language of inheritance. Do you see how that's pointing forward? We are already saved now, yes, but the fullness of our salvation is yet to come. There is an inheritance waiting for us, and we don't get it just because we're awesome. In fact, we get it because we're not, and we recognize it. 
We get that inheritance because it is rightfully belonging to Jesus, the Son. It's His. He earned it. He won it. And instead of selfishly holding on to it, He says, I delight to share it with you, my people. What a remarkable King He is. That He would share His inheritance with us and then send out these angels to ensure that we inherit that salvation that he has won for us. So we began this morning by reflecting on what impresses us. What we've seen in Hebrews 1 is that nothing and no one is more impressive than Jesus. He is even more impressive than the angels because he has a greater name, he has a greater commission, and he has a greater destiny. And for some of you here this morning, maybe you came in unimpressed with Jesus. Maybe you've grown up going to church, or I've heard stories about Jesus, but have never quite understood why he's such a big deal. My hope is, if that's you this morning, that God's Spirit has opened your eyes and taken those blinders off and shown you the beauty of Jesus for the first time. And if that's you this morning, you simply need to confess that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Turn away from your sins and put your full trust and confidence in him. Who else is more impressive than him? What are you looking for? What else could you possibly need? He has given his very life for you. He has surrendered his life so that you can have eternal life, so you can be rescued from the condemnation that we all deserve because of our sins. There is no one more impressive than Jesus. Stop looking. You are not going to find him. Make today the day where you surrender your life to him. And for those of us who've already committed our lives to Christ, put our trust in him, I, I worry, and I see this in my own life, how our familiarity sometimes with Jesus can easily blind us to the reality of who he is. That we can almost become like those first century Jews walking past Jesus on the street, not even stopping for a minute to think about who we're talking about, who we're praying to, who we're actually encountering when we read the word. And we just have this sort of ho-hum. My hope is that in this passage, God has used the very words that he inspired to rekindle your sense of awe and wonder that Jesus is the Son of God. Because whatever else impresses you, there is no one like Jesus, either on heaven or in heaven or on earth. He has the name that is above every name. There is no one like him. 
He is superior to anyone that you are already impressed by. He is the one who spoke everything into creation that we see. He is the one who is right now ruling over creation as the rightful king. And because of that, we can trust him. No matter how often our circumstances change. We can live in hope because there is coming a day. And I look forward to this so much. There is coming a day when every last enemy of God will be crushed underneath the feet of Jesus the Son. And he will rule over a new heavens and a new earth. Every last stain of sin, every remnant of the curse, every last enemy will be done away with forever. And Jesus, the Son of God, will reign unchallenged in the midst of his redeemed and resurrected people. And here's the best part. As we are in that new Eden with Jesus, the Son of God, we will see his face. The one before whom the angels cover their face when they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and is and is to come. The angels cover their face out of reverence and Jesus will show us his face. We will look into his eyes. We will see his beautiful face the face of the Son of God in all his resurrected splendor and he will cause his face to shine upon us because he's been gracious to us and he has given us eternal peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us your word like this in the midst of changing circumstances, in the midst of weekly routines and daily routines, it is so easy to lose sight of the wonder of who Jesus is. And I pray, Lord, if there are people here this morning who have never seen the beauty of Jesus, that your spirit would open those eyes and breathe spiritual life into them so they can see the beauty of Jesus as the Son of God. And for those of us who have already received that great blessing of you opening our eyes, I pray that you would wean us away from being overly impressed with such lesser things and instead find that we are in awe of Jesus, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. And I pray that we would live in the hope that that brings, that one day we will see his face and we will rejoice forever in a new creation with him, serving and ruling with him. Until that day, Lord, give us strength to follow him closely and give us hope in the midst of that, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.